Okay. All right, we are on. Welcome you guys who are watching at home and of course our live studio church. There's a piece of important business that I have to get to before we get into the scripture and prayer and all that. We have lots of bagels. Please take them. I said that to the camera as if the people at home could do anything about it. It's okay. Let's what we do here is we pray, we sing the Bible verses to uh, music, and then we sit in silence. We come back. We're going to continue in Revelation. We're in chapter 13. We're talking about the beast. We're talking about another beast. We are talking about a beasty, meaty topic. Let's pray. Lord, we uh, pause and thank you for life. We know that uh, amidst all that goes on, uh, sometimes some of the topics we talk about here and their application may not seem uh, terribly important, but we just pray that we'll glean from our conversation the things you want us to know and help us to be able to relax and trust in you and realize that all this information has its purpose in place and walk out, no matter how heavy it might get, refreshed with the knowledge that you loved us so much, you gave us your only begotten son, who came and lived and died and resurrected and did everything he said he would. And uh, we can rest comfortably in that knowledge and allow you to work in our lives as believers. We pray, Lord, that if we're having trouble with life, that we will look to you. If we're having trouble with forgiving people, that we will look to you. If we're having trouble with uh, understanding what you want from our lives, that we will look to you when you walk the earth. So be with us now as we consider your words set to music. In Jesus' name, amen. One. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They've all turned aside. They have together Save his life will lose 
Okay, we've been talking about Nero. We're going to talk more about Nero. Uh, in Christianity today, many people have been walking about and talking about who the Antichrist is, who's the beast, when are they going to rise up out of the ocean, what's, it go what's going to happen at the end of the age, end of the world. And uh, we've been reading the book of Revelation and been citing historical uh, supports that picture a very different uh, event going on here. So let's talk about that. Last week we read in chapter 13, verses 5 through 7. And verses 5 through 7 are talking about uh, the beast. And it says, And there was given unto him a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies, and power was given unto him to continue forty and two months. We talked about how that was the exact amount of time that Nero was persecuting uh, the Christian church, 40 and two months. And he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle and them that dwell in heaven, verse 7. And it was given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And we can see here that this beast was able to kill saints. He was wrapping them up in plastic, not plastic, he was wrapping them up in wax in his garden and lighting them on fire. He was wrapping them up in food and feeding them to the uh, lions to tear the Christians apart. We're talking about horrific acts upon Christians, so horrific that it is thought that it was the worst period of time ever, including the period of Domitian, where Nero tortured the saints. And this is uh, how I would suggest Revelation is describing it. It happened back then, and he, this uh, revelation was to the warning the church this was coming. And power was given him over all kindreds, tongues, and nations. So we talked all about that. Let's read now at verse 8, admitting that at first glance, the content of, first, of verse 8 on through is tough. It says, And all that dwell upon the earth worshipped him, whose names were not written in the book of life. They were worshiping him, not written in the book of life. Uh, of the slain land from the foundation of the world. And then John writes, if any man has an ear, let him hear. And he adds, he that leads into captivity shall go into captivity. He that killeth with the sword must be killed with the sword. Speaking of this beast, here is the patience and faith of the saints, he adds. So we talked about that. We're going to finish that, those parts up. And then he goes into verse 11, and this becomes a very questionable area for preterists, full preterists, uh, even futurists and stuff. It says, and I beheld another beast. So now we have a second beast coming up out of the earth. First beast came up out of the sea. And you know that as we've talked, and I'm going to reiterate this, in Revelation, the sea represents Gentile nations and the land represents Israel. Sea and land, sea and land. Well, now we have a beast rising up out of the land instead of the sea. And uh, it says, and he has two horns like a lamb and he speaks as a dragon and he exercises all the power of the first beast before him and causes the earth and them which dwell therein to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed and he goes and he doeth great wonders so that he makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men and deceives them that dwell on the earth by those means whose miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast saying to them that dwell on the earth that they should make an image to the beast which had the wound by the sword and did live. And he had power to give life unto the image of the beast, and the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast be killed. And he caused all, both small and great, rich and poor, bond and free, to receive a mark in their right hand and in their foreheads that no man could buy or sell, save he that had the mark or name of the beast and the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him that understands count the number of the beast, 
for it is the number of a man. Remember that. And his number is 603 score and 6. We're not going to get to this end part today of what I just read until next week. We're going to lay out again. But remember, that was talking about the first beast, all that latter stuff. We got to talk about verse 8 through 10, and then we got to talk about who the second beast is. So go back to verse 8. It's talking about the first beast, who I say is Nero, and all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him, whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. If any man has an ear, let him hear. He that leadeth into captivity shall go into captivity. So the, we know that the beast leads into captivity. He shall go into captivity. And he that kills with the sword must be killed with the sword. Again, speaking of that beast, here is the patience and faith of the saints. Okay. From verse 8, the preterist vantage point of all the national Israel, all who dwell on the earth. That's how I would see that. All who are dwelling on the earth, the earth represents Israel, all of Israel, and as we have seen, the earth is Israel, the sea is the Gentiles. All who dwell in Israel worship this beast, this first beast except for those whose names were written in the Lamb's book of life that was slain from before the foundation of the world. So at that time, we had a situation where there was the nation of Israel. We had the first beast come out of the sea, which we say is the Gentiles, which was Nero. And he is going after the church, and he is persecuting Christians. And it says that all those who are on the land worship this beast. That would be Israel itself, whose names were not written in the Lamb's book of life. So that's implying that those who looked to the Lamb, believed on him in faith during that time, names were written in that book. But those whose names weren't were worshiping this beast who came out of the sea, which would be Nero. John adds, if any man has ears, let him hear. Obviously speaking to those whose names have been written in the Lamb's book of life. They have been given ears to hear. Jesus said that message well. He said there are those who have eyes to see, those who have ears to hear. And he's saying, those who have ears to hear what I'm saying, listen closely, right? Verse 10, he adds here in Revelation, he that leads into captivity shall go down into captivity. He that kills with the sword must be killed with the sword. And then the final line, here is the patience and faith of the saints. What does that mean, that last line? It means that, the patience and faith of the saints is that this beast is going to roar for 42 months. He is going to do great damage to the saints. He's going to kill them. But the patience and faith of the saints says, we know that the person or being that's leading into captivity will be put in captivity. Who has led by the sword will die by the sword. Here is the patience of the saints whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. So, for starters, the ESV uh, translation versus the King James or the New King James say this differently, this passage. Suffice it to say, this appears to be a, a clear prophecy of how this first beast is going to die. And we talked, touched on this last week. If this is the meaning, which I believe it is, it would be taken as a comfort to the saints in that day to read this revelation from John and know that the hell they are going through was going to last for a specific period of time, 42 months, no longer. If they can get through that time, they're going to be okay. Uh, and then we, and as I said, Nero's reign over the Christian church was for 42 months. It's one of the most telling prophecies of this being him. Nero martyred thousands, including Paul. Uh, by the sword and, and num a number of different ways. Tertullian, in his book, Before Jerusalem's Fall, credits Nero's cruise sword as providing the martyr's blood that seeded the church. That's how he put it. It was the martyr's blood spilt that the church was planted in and then grew from there. Um, it's a historical fact that Nero, as we said, also committed suicide by a sword to the throat. And so uh, he could have taken poison. They were taking hemlock back in Socrates' day, which was 450 years earlier. 
He certainly could have died an easier way, but he did it by the sword. That fulfills that verse that says he who lives by the sword will die by the sword. So he indeed, he indeed did uh, live and die by the sword, and it was this event in June of 68 A.D., which brought an end of that 42 months. And at that point in time, it was all that persecution was done. We also know that Nero fit the description of this beast. Uh, uh, not only the 42 months, not only the death by the sword, uh, but his demand for worship. Uh, Nero demanded while alive to be worshipped rather than as an emperor to be immortalized as a god after life. Most of the other emperors worship me after life, consider me have to having become a god, but uh, Nero was, hey, while I'm alive, do it. And so we also have seen that first century Rome fits the description of this beast in a general sense, and that its identification with the fourth, fourth beast in Daniel uh, Daniel 7, 1 through 8, and with the healing of the mortal wound suffered by the Roman Empire, and then it rose back to life. All this fits in with this picture of what is being described. I realize that you have to, you have to reach out in different areas when you're studying Revelation, and application has different uh, uh, places, but that's how most people who have the same view I do see this. Before we move on, I want to talk about Antichrist. Because uh, it is a word we banter, banter, we banter around, we banter around a lot today. Uh, so popular in Christian culture, and sometimes it's assumed that the Antichrist is talked about in the Book of Revelation. You notice we haven't read Antichrist here in the Book of Revelation, though the Book of Revelation was penned by John, um, and John uses the term Antichrist in his epistles. John does not use Antichrist in the book of Revelation. We know that the epistles were probably written before Revelation, so we know that it was on John's mind to know of Antichrist or Christs, and yet he doesn't include that term in Revelation itself. Why? Because there is no Antichrist of Revelation. I have even been, uh, even I think a couple of weeks ago, talked about the Antichrist in terms of Revelation. But there is no Antichrist mentioned in here. Uh, the term is never used uh, uh, anywhere in the Bible except by John. So Daniel seems to refer to the Antichrist in, uh, and Peter and Paul mention, um, uh, Paul mentions the man of sin in uh, Second Thessalonians, the man of sin, uh, but doesn't call him the Antichrist. And so um, it's only John who speaks, uses that exact term. So First uh, and Second John, four places in the entire New Testament where Antichrist is used. It's in First John 2:18, First John 2:22, First John 4:3, and Second uh, John 7. Now I'm going to read you what John says about Antichrist here. Just listen to his words, okay? In 1 John 2.18, he says, Little children, it is the last hour. Uh, the, 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 the last click on the uh, tick on the clock is here, okay? It is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming... This is in his day. Even now, many antichrists have come. That's how he answers that. You've heard antichrist is coming. Even now, many are here saying it's arrived. The hour is here, which uh, by which we know it is the last hour is how he ends that verse. That's a significant verse coming from scripture about the term antichrist. Uh, little children, it's the last hour. You have heard that Antichrist is coming. Let me tell you something. Even many Antichrists are here, and by this we know it's the last hour. All right? In 1 John 2.22, John writes, Who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? He is Antichrist 
who denies the Father and the Son. That is Antichrist. So as people were wandering about and, and saying, ah, oh, the Son is not the Son, he's a Gnostic uh, image, uh, demiurge that floats around, forget all that. We don't trust in this story. That John is directly speaking to the Gnostics and saying, the Antichrist are those that deny Christ and deny uh, Father and Son. Note there, uh, the, to our Trinitarian fellows, uh, that John doesn't say he is Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. He doesn't say that. He just says who denies the Father and the Son. Just a little uh, thing to throw in your quiver of knowledge when you study uh, Scripture. Then in 1 John 4, 3, John says this. Listen. Every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. That's a direct argument to the Gnostics who said there's no way that God was in flesh. So he was directly speaking to them. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and now already is in the world. So there he again assigns the idea of Antichrist present in the world because the Antichrist was about and they, it was uh, proposing Christ, would, the, the Messiah would never be in human flesh. Finally, in 2 John 1, 7, John writes, last verse, For many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an Antichrist. Those are the four times it's used. So if you ever get in a discussion with someone who says, well, the time, who's the Antichrist? And who was the Antichrist and all that stuff? Just say, look, let me just bring it down to earth here. The Antichrist is talked about four times, not in Revelation. And, it's, and, and it was about who was there presently as Antichrist on the earth when John was alive. So in these passages, John makes the following points. First, he tells his readers that the Antichrist, they knew it was coming and that it was even there, indicating that they were in the last hour in John's day. These arguments right now, if we stop, should be enough for people to say, when we read the scripture and assign it to a future time, we have taken a liberty that is not present in the text. Uh, but nevertheless, we still do. And then the other one we learn is anyone who denies the Father and the Son or that Jesus is the Christ is Antichrist. And the next one is that the spirit of Antichrist that was in the world in John's day was characterized as denying Jesus is God in the flesh. That was the spirit of it. And finally, the Antichrist is anyone who does not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh, both in the flesh and his arrival to earth in flesh. So according to John, there were many such persons in that day. And I just think it's important for us to remember all these things. When people start blamoring on and on about Antichrist for the past 2,000 years, who it possibly could be, uh, it's not Damien born in England to a rich family with three sixes on his scalp. Okay, let's read verse 11 because now we're introduced to the second beast coming out of the earth instead of the sea. And I beheld another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spake as a dragon. We're presented, those of you who follow the preterist view, with a tad bit of a glitch here with, with preterists, because no one can really identify who this second beast is. There's four main theories. Um, and the reason I'm not going into the futurist argument is because the futurists don't I have any idea who it is. And the historicists, they don't have any idea who it is. So all we have are four postulations. There's been two places in Revelation that have been tough for preterists. One was, uh, the first one was the two witnesses. That one don't have a definitive, uh, solid answer to give. There's a lot of hypothecation, but no solid answer. And the second one is this. Who is this second beast? Um, let the spirit guide. So far in the book of Revelation, it seems that references to the earth, again, refer to the land, the earth, refer to Israel. And uh, is this the case here? 
is the question. Preterists are even divided on that. That bugs me if we're using a pretty solid system of interpreting the scripture throughout, and then suddenly when we come to a passage that we can't answer, we toss that out and say, well, it could mean something different. And I realize that does happen in the whole of scripture, but in a single book where the same imagery is used to describe the land is Israel, the land is Israel, the sea are the Gentile armies, the sea is Rome, and then we get to a place where we're not really sure to try to change those rules. That bugs me, So, but that has happened in trying to explain this. It does seem to be a much greater consensus, though, that this second beast is one and the same as the false prophet. Not to mix things up for you too much, but it's the false prophet spoken of in Revelation 16, 19, and 20. And when we get to those passages, we'll talk about the false prophet and show you how it fits in terms of back then versus today. Uh, Anyway, we first notice that this second beast exercises the authority of the first beast. That's what it says. And that uh, which we have identified the first beast as Nero. So the second beast seems to represent the authority of Nero, the first beast. Uh, It does so in its presence, is what it says, or on its behalf, as the ESV says. So the second beast is exercising an authority uh, that it got from Nero on its, on Nero's behalf. So let me just look, uh, take you to the four, uh, I should have moved this out of the way, the four theories on who the second beast is, and you can decide what you think. It's not a big deal, but it is something worth covering. The first one is called the uh, Roman... Uh, con, I better spell it right so I don't look dumber than I am. Concilia. And uh, it's, this is known as the cult of the Roman Empire. Preterist Steve Gregg says, quote, the most frequently encountered view suggests that this beast, second beast, is a symbol of the cult of the emperor. And that it is an organized force within first century Rome that sought to enforce the worship of the Kaisers. So this is more of a, uh, a force. It's like a cult following of the emperor's following. Wow. And uh, so it's thought that this is that second beast that rises up out of the land uh, but because it says land now, that troubles me. I, because it should be rising out of the sea if we're going to be consistent with interpretation. Uh, the second beast's two horns are suggesting like a lamb, a religious nature instead of a governmental nature of all the ten horns. And these entities' job, these Roman concilia's job, was to regulate all the details related to the emperor himself. So... It had, the concilia had the authority to impose economic sanctions on others and who wouldn't show their allegiance or willingness to worship Nero. So that's the first explanation of this second beast that came into power. The second view is that it is a singular (coughs) Jewish leader. Um, some think of this beast has to be confined to Israel because it comes out of the earth and so it's a Jewish leader which is why we we come up with this theory and uh, at least it's consistent in the use of terms if it comes out of the earth it has to be a Jew because Israel is the earth the reason the second beast has only two horns is because it's the king and priest um, among the Jews and uh, it, that's its government. It's related to religion. One preterist scholar, last name Russell, says, quote, he can be no other than the Roman procurator or governor of Judea under Nero. And at that particular outbreak must be sought at or near the outbreak of the Jewish war. So what he's saying there in long, <laughs> protracted language is 
this has to be some Jewish guy who was over Judea under Roman authority who fits the bill, a single Jewish leader. Uh, Russell, this preterist who writes this, points out that Jesseus Florus was hands down the worst and most oppressive governor of the Jewish province, and he ruled from 64 to 66 AD. So the, uh, that Jewish ruler uh, by name is, uh, according to history, Jesseus Flor. And uh, Josephus also supports the, and says that he was the primary cause of the Jewish revolt, which led to the Roman-Jewish War that lasted from 66 A.D. to 73 A.D. So this guy was a, an important figure. He was a Jew, and he did side with the Romans, so he could be seen as this second beast. Russell acknowledges that Josephus and other uh, historians don't record that Jesseus Florus uh, had compulsory, uh, didn't, he didn't force people to uh, worship uh, the emperor's statue and all that, but he adds the image of the beast is clearly a statue of uh, the emperor, meaning that he didn't, we don't have any record of him going around and forcing people to bow to the images of uh, Nero. And we're gonna talk about images in a second. So this holds some water because he comes up out of the earth. The third one is just like this, but it's not a singular. It is the collective uh, Jewish rulers is the beast that rises out of the land, Israel. And they are the enforcers uh, of Nero upon their own people. This is the third definition for the beast. Famous preterist David uh, Chilton, he sees this as representing the Jewish religious system uh, and the leadership collectively uh, using a false agent of God on behalf of God, uh, and that would be the Romans. He writes, quote, the Jewish leaders symbolized by this beast from the land joined forces with the beast of Rome, of the sea, in an attempt to destroy the church. And he gives about 10 uh, citations from the book of Acts where the Jewish leaders were uh, involved in trying to kill and stamp out and shut up the propagation of the gospel. And I can give those to you if you're interested. Chilton adds, quote, the book of Acts records several instances of miracle working Jewish false prophets who came into conflict with the church. That would fit this description of the second beast here in Revelation and worked under Roman officials, uh, as Jesus had foretold. And he foretells this in, in Matthew 7. Some of them even used his name in their incantations. We know this from Acts chapter 19, that some of these Jewish sorcerers used Jesus' name. So this begins to fit what this beast is like in doing the miracles and stuff. One uh, person holds to this view. He said that after citing John 19, 15, 22, that when the chief priest said, we have no king but Caesar, this is right in harmony, this theory right in harmony with what was going on in the mindset of the Jewish leaders. Not only did the religious leaders reject the true king, but they also pledged their allegiance to Rome. At the same, we have no king. They could say, we have no king. We don't have a king. We don't have a king. But they added, but Caesar, but Kaiser. And so that was, uh, that's an important thing. And the book of Acts tells us both about false Jewish prophets who perform signs and miracles. Simon Magnus was one, that's in Acts chapter eight. And uh, through magic and allegiance between Rome, this could fulfill all those descriptions that we're reading about. Uh, Acts chapter 13, six through 11, we meet a false prophet and a magician named Bar-Jesus, who's uh, with the Roman proconsul Sergius Paulus, as well as Elimaeus, the magician, all characters in the book of Acts showing Jews having the powers to do things and drawing on the power of Rome to support them in that. So this one holds quite a bit of water when we look at what uh, scripture says that was going on in the time of Acts with the end of that age. And as far as I'm concerned, this one, looking at the evidence, seems to hold the most water of uh, who this beast was rising up out of the land consistent and then doing these things. 
by the time of Nero's persecution, this persecution of the second beast only intensified. And so just as the Roman Empire under the rule of Nero fits this description of the first beast, the apostate Jewish leaders who point away from the true king and towards Rome and towards Caesar fit the description of the second beast. And that is why I think it makes most uh, sense. And just to summarize quickly, notice that they were from the land. That keeps us consistent. Um, they worked in accordance with the Roman Empire. Uh, they pledged their allegiance to not only not having a king, but that king, the king they do have, is Caesar or Kaiser. They opposed the Christian church uh, fervently, and they performed signs and wonders, as we read about in the book of Acts in our verse-by-verse -verse study in Milk over the past few years. And they were considered false prophets, just as the second beast is called in, here in Revelation, a false prophet uh, not in chapter 16, 19, and 20. So we have some real consistency here to say when it talks about this second beast that this is who it is represented by. And I'm going to read those passages again later on before we wrap it up. And you just think about the choices we have on the board and you think about how this fits. And I think you'll see it does fit really well. Again, I have to throw this in our day and age because preterists are often accused of being anti-Semitic because they point out, hey, look, this is who they were. This is what they did. They're the ones who are getting wiped out by God, and it, it happened. And so it's not uh, against Israel today. It's not, I'm not anti-Semitic in the least. We are all under Christ, male, female, bond-free, Jew, Greek. Doesn't matter anymore. But I certainly don't hold any nation or people above any other in terms of allegiance. It's not anti-Semitic. I just don't see them as any differently than any other human being. And preterism is often accused of the opposite of that uh, Ken Get Gentry points one more thing out about this group he says since the times of Julius Caesar Israel benefited from certain special privileges from Rome that were not allowed of its other subjects listen to this Josephus points out that these privileges included the ability of the Jews to gather freely for special religious meetings that was against uh, a Roman policy. You could not do that any other place. But the Jews had a special dispensation by the Roman government to be able to practice their religion. And that is one thing they had, according to Josephus Antiquities 14, 10, and 18, and, quote, to also maintain its strict monotheism. So within the nation, under Rome rule, the uh, nation of Israel was allowed to strictly adhere to monotheism and was not forced, as all the other uh, uh, groups were under their control, to practice polytheism. So uh, it's quite likely that this relationship is what symbolizes the harlot sitting upon uh, a scarlet beast full of blasphemous names and its seven heads and ten horns that we read about in Revelation 17, which we'll get to. That kind of pictures what has gone on there. Uh, also, we know that at the time of Nero's second wife, her name was Papea Sabina. It's a really ugly, sordid story of how, where she came from. But there was a great intensity from her to study and know about the nation of Israel. And so they had favor for a time with Nero because his second wife really was interested in them, while those who were opposed to Israel, quote-unquote, the Christians, were under his terror and that's another way to see that. Um, quote, the Jews responded to the favors of Rome by offering sacrifices twice every day for Caesar. So, and for the Roman people. That's from Josephus Wars uh, 2, uh, 10 and 4. So we know that at this time, they were offering sacrifices on behalf of a pagan heathen nation in the name of God by their priesthood so that they could have that affiliation with Rome. That is pretty, pretty uh, radical. And that also supports cross-reference with Daniel 11, uh, verse 31, and 12, verse 11. So uh, they were offering this up in honor of Caesar, but in the summer of 66 AD, Josephus said something happened that led to the uh, Roman-Jewish war. 
there was a guy, a kid sort of, whose name was Eliezer, and he was the son of Ananias the high priest, and he was bold as all get out. And he persuaded those who were officiating in the temple services and offering up sacrifices for Caesar and Rome to not do it any longer. And this was the true beginning, it seems, of the Roman uh, war, for they rejected the sacrifice of Caesar at his bidding. And when many of the high priests and principal people uh, said we're not going to commit sacrifices anymore to Caesar, um, they were prevailed upon by the Romans and because they considered that an act of insurrection. You've been offering to Caesar. You've, we've had our uh, benevolence all these years. We've let you practice your religion. You can do this and no one else. And now suddenly you're going to stop act, uh, offering sacrifice to Nero. That's who the Caesar was at this time. No, 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 no. And that's when the war erupted. So that collective Jewish rulers makes the most sense to me in terms of the second beast. Finally, there is this one. I'm just going to mention it to you because of the information. I always want to put an A there. Vitellius. And he was a Roman emperor. He was the uh, eighth. Yeah, he was the eighth. Uh, because we have stayed with the C as being defined as the Gentiles, this one doesn't make sense because he would have been a Gentile, so the second beast would have risen out of the out of the sea if this was true, and he doesn't. He didn't come from the land, Israel. So I dismiss Vitellius all the way. But we learn a lot about the level of worship for Nero by the study of Vitellius. And that leads us to see how the last passages of this chapter apply to him, Nero, being the beast and being the, the one who was reigning terror and fulfilling all the rest of Revelation. Uh, Vitellius is the ninth emperor, excuse me, and he was devoted in his worship to Nero beyond compare, and it greatly pleased the public by offering sacrifices to Nero's spirit. They, 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 they would offer sacrifices to Nero's spirit, which they believed embodied the statues that were placed around the empire. Um, there's a square a kilometer in Rome, it's known as the Field of Mars, and a two square mile, two square kilometer public square in Rome where all the priests and the people would attend and offer up the sacrifices to Nero. Uh, these were funerary offerings to Nero and this left no doubt in anyone's mind what Vitellius stood for, honor to Nero. That's the second beast giving honor and power to the first, so to speak. Uh, the actions of Vitellius seem to fulfill what is written here of a second beast, even though I, I disagree with it, but they seem to. And this cause, this is um, what it says about the false prophet. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth, listen to this, and it had two horns at, like a lamb, and it spoke as a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence or on its behalf and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. So this is why some people believe this was him, but I think that we have a better example of them worshiping the Roman uh, Empire through these guys because they were offering up sacrifice through their temple to uh, uh, Caesar. At the time of Revelation when it was written, the ancients believed that statues spoke. They, they, uh, and that statues could even perform miracles. And it was thought that gods and demons used statues as conduits to communicate with humans and to perform miracles on their behalf. And so the ancient world was littered with, with uh, statues of their leaders. Both Justin and Irenaeus, early church writers, leaders, wrote that the si heretic Simon Magnus is said to have brought statues to life. Okay, we read about Simon Magnus in the book of Acts. A Clementine recognitions, that's Justin, and Apologia, that's Irenaeus, against heresies. That's where they both cite that, that it was believed Simon Magnus had the ability to bring statues, these graven images, to life. And in fact, in ancient times, it was precisely the point of having an idol. Um, people thought that the life of the idol was living inside that idol, 
and could actually do things on behalf of uh, the being that was inside of it. In their book, Late Antiquity, A Guide to Post-Classical World, uh, it's in 1999, the authors are Brown, Bowersock, and Grabber. I, it says that uh, it was common to see images of Roman Empire, of Roman emperors in the third uh, and fourth century, just littering, just littering the place everywhere so that they could be appealed to. And they took prominent places throughout the empire and were worshiped, and this was ordinary in the first century. So those who, um, for instance, Constantine, who thought of him as this great guy, uh, they too had this relationship with the statues of him. Uh, and these emperors would rarely appear in person. That's another thing. They would, they would maybe in their own province, they would appear, but outside of it, they wouldn't go. Instead, their presence was represented by statues. And, and so we learn, and this is a list from that book I just read to you, Municipal squares were dominated by imperial statues. So if you lived in Panguitch instead of Salt Lake, to make an, uh, uh, an equivalent, they would have a statue of Thomas S. Monson and his, and his uh, counselors there in Panguitch, and the people would give honor to the uh, statue as if it was Thomas S. Monson himself living here in Salt Lake City. That's what they did with the uh, emperors, particular Nero. And the portraits of emperors were hung in office buildings and theaters, and their range and variety, imperial images made, because they were strewn everywhere, made them omnipotent. They were God, because they were everywhere. If you actually believe the uh, statue is the being, filled with the being's spirit, you will worship that statue, because he is everywhere, and that was the idea. Um, They called mirror images of the majesty, is how they would put it. And uh, listen, it was as rigid in the way you approached a statue as it would have been if the emperor came to you personally. In other words, you would be punished if you didn't lay yourself out uh, prostrate on the ground before it, like you would when the actual emperor came. And those approaching an emperor's statue, uh, it says, not as though they were looking at a picture or image, but upon the very face of the emperor himself. So a proper atmosphere of sanctity was always maintained around these statues. So as we've said, statues of Nero's likeness already existed in the Roman Empire during his lifetime. I'm going to move back, Mary. During his lifetime, those statues were up and around. Usually the emperors were humble enough to wait for their death, but not for Nero. In 55 AD, the second year of his reign, the Roman Senate erected a statue of Nero in the Temple of Mars that was 110 to 120 feet high. You're talking one giant statue of himself. The emperor's brow was crowned with rays, suggesting a comparison with the uh, sun god Ra'a Ra of the Egyptians, or sun god Sol, uh, uh, whatever they call him. And his portrait appeared on coins at the time as Apollo, playing with a lyre. He, uh, even his mother, uh, Agrippia Pina, was uh, hailed by provincial coins, saying of her, she's the goddess and parent of God. That's what... This is how bad this guy was. So when you hear that he's going to say, worship me as God, it c historically we have a figure here where it fit. Uh, inscriptions found in Ephesus called Nero, Almighty God and Savior, and inscriptions found in Cyprus called him God and Savior. There's no need to look out beyond for someone to come up and do this. I don't, there's just none. It's, it's fulfilled here. Um, they revered Caesar Augustus all the way back in 27 BC. They really did. But uh, that was modest compared to how they revered Nero. Dio Cassius, a historian, writes of an incident in which a regional king uh, was forced to worship both Nero and his image. 
and this occurred in 66 AD uh, when king of Armenia, Tiridates, visited uh, Nero. Quote, it says, a quote, indeed the proceedings of the conference were not limited to mere conversations, but a lofty platform had been erected on which sets of images of Nero and in the presence of the Armenians and the Parthenians and the Roman Tiridates approached and paid them reverence. Then after sacrificing to them and calling them laudatory names, he took off the diadem of his head and set it upon them. Tiridates publicly fell before Nero, seated upon the, rost the rostra in the forum and said, quote, Master, I am a descendant of Arsaces, brother of the kings of Vologasus and Prochorus, and thy slave. And I have come to thee, my God, to worship thee as I do Mithras. That's a God. The destiny that thou spinnest for me shall be mine. Thou art my fortune and my fate, end quote. That's a quote from the prayer that was said by this um, king when he went to visit, king of Armenia, when he went to visit a shrine for Nero, not Nero himself. Uh, Ken Gentry says, by this action, this king actually worshipped, ready for this, the image of the beast. That's where we get it. It's from that history. Now we have worshipping the image of the beast, which is what Revelation talks about at verse 15 in this chapter. One senator was more rebellious. His name was Thrasia, and he failed to worship Nero and his divine voice. Dio Cassius says that he was executed, quote, Thracia was executed because he failed to appear regularly in the Senate and because he never would listen to the emperor's singing and lyre playing, nor uh, sacrifice to Nero's divine uh, voice as, he, as did the rest, end quote. So Nero was even deified in Greece, uh, where he spent a significant amount of time in 67 AD as a musician and an actor in Grecian festivals, and he was proclaimed Zeus, our liberator, and a statue there was set up in the Temple of Apollo where he was called the new sun, uh, illuminating the Hellenes. So, I mean, even in Greece, Nero was held up as God, illuminating uh, things. When he returned to Rome in early 68 AD, the entire population was made to come out and greet him, and these were the words they were forced to say, hail Olympian victor. Remember, they would let him win because of his ego forced uh, everybody to let him win in the Grecian games. Hail Olympian victor. Hail Pythian victor. Augustus, Augustus. Hail to Nero, our Hercules. Hail to our hero, our Apollo, the only victor of the grand tour, the only one from the beginning of time. Augustus, Augustus, O divine voice, Blessed are they that hear you. These are the words of worship for the beast. That's exactly what it's all about. So having heard this, I want to reread the remainder of the chapter 13, beginning at verse 11. And you just listen to it, and then we're going to wrap it up. And I beheld another beast coming out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and spake as a dragon, and he exercised all the power of the first beast, before him, and caused the earth and them which dwell therein to worship the first beast, whose deadly wound was healed. And he doeth great wonders, so that he makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men, and deceiveth them that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles which he had done, to, which he had power to do in the sight of the beast saying to them that dwell on the earth that they should make an image to the beast which had the wound of the sword and did live. And he had power to give life unto the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause that as many as should not worship the image of the beast should be killed. You've heard this described to you in the futurist sense. This is what it's going to be. This is how it's going to We've given historical evidence of this is what was in the past tense. And he causeth all, the small and great, rich and poor, bond and free, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads. We're going to talk about that mark next week. That no man has the right to buy or sell, save that have the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. 
Let him that understands count the number of the beast, for it's the number of a man, and his number is six hundred three score and six. So, in the first chapter, the first ten verses, we showed that Nero fit the description of the first beast. And uh, in the specific sense, and that first century Rome fit the description of the same beast in the general sense. Specific sense, Nero. General sense, Rome itself. We are introduced to his main advocate now, the second beast, which I suggest to you is the collective Jewish rulers over the land at that time who did worship the beast. But there's other options. You might differ if you agree with any of them. Next week, we're going to further look into the healing of the first beast's mortal wound, that mark that's in the hand to buy and sell and trade, and the identification of 666 uh, as the symbol uh, in order to buy, sell, and trade. Questions, comments, or insight? Stop. Oh. Hold on, Brother Patrick. All right, Patrick, I got to repeat your question, so be sparse with your words. Just kidding. This is from Patrick, you guys at home. It works now? Is it working? It works? Oh, praise the Lord Jesus. Ah. Praise the Lord Jesus. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Okay, let me just calm down a little. Okay. Or otherwise. Okay, my question is, is, um, uh, and if Christ came in 70 AD, what does it mean that he took his church? What does that mean? He came for this generation shall not pass away. Many of you used to be standing here and you see the power of heaven c- coming. What he does that took, mean? He, he took, took his, his church. Bride. That was his bride. Who? who? Uh, the believers whose names were written in the Lamb's Book of Life who looked to him in faith and went through the tribulation that was imposed upon them at that time. And then, um, but there was... There's still a remnant because there's Christians today, right? Of course, of course. That's the body of Christ. So then he didn't take it. So then he didn't take everybody that believed in him. He did at that time. But remember, there were maybe the uh, the, the the spirit moved upon others to believe. Maybe there was a remnant left at that time. He didn't take. Sure. Maybe there was believers in uh, places as far away as London because they think Paul got maybe that far wow. that believed and weren't taken at that time. They weren't living under the promise he would come and get them. They didn't even have written scriptures to say so. So it's quite possible the church continued to spread, but he took his bride from those people as promised. And as the, all the apostles said he would, came and rescued them from the terrors that were going on. Awesome. And then um, just really quick, do you believe when Christ died on the cross that he took care of our sins, past, present, and future? Of course. Okay. Amen. Praise the Lord. Do you believe that? Amen. Jesus has the victory. All right. We'll all agree. Anything else? All right. Um, you may have gone over this last week, but what is the con- contextual evidence that um, the Jewish nation repre- is represented by earth and uh, the Roman oh, or the Gentiles represented by... We went over it about in the first, uh, probably first two months of covering it. Okay. Uh, the evidence is there as, as if you just look at whenever land or sea is used and try to imagine what's happening both to the land and or where it's coming from, the sea, you're able to see that one force is non-believers and the other force are people of God at some point in time or another. And that is where it comes from. But I couldn't tell you the passages. I'll look and see if I can dig that out and tell you. But it's a really good question. Is that it? All right, let's pray. Thank you for being here today. So close to the holy days. Lord, we, uh, we thank you. Hopefully we can take something from all this information about the book and, uh, and use it in our Christian lives. But most importantly, we want to exit here as people who look to you and trust you, live by your spirit, full of hope, full of uh, faith, full of love. Help us to uh, exist this week 
under those principles and those characteristics that come by your spirit and not by our flesh. And be with us as we enter into this hectic week of busyness, of travel and relatives and fixing up homes and meals and and present giving and all the stuff that happens down here. We just pray that we will always look and remember you. And uh, we will have your light shining as we engage with the hustle and bustle of this season. Uh, we pray that we will be uh, effective in talking with those who don't know you yet, not by compulsion, but that we will be able to communicate to them the hope that is within us without being oppressive or, or insulting, uh, but in love. Uh, we pray for Diana, healing of mind and body and spirit and her leg. We pray for our, our little friend Gracie, who's recovering from cancer and She's in chemo and radiation. We pray you'll bless her and bless her, her uh, family taking care of her. Pray for Lisa and her health as she uh, continues to battle uh, cancer. We pray for Annette, who is healing through chemo. We pray for Mike and the lung cancer, recovering from surgery, future treatments. Pray for Jarvis Green and uh, his cancer. And the specific request here, Lord, is that he'll be at peace and he will reconcile uh, his mind and heart to you completely as he enters into the stages of life uh, that may uh, leave him at this time, at least here on earth. We pray for Leah uh, Caravan and uh, that she'll stay strong and heal, for Taylor Godfrey to heal from drug addiction, Kathy to be healed from diabetes, and that she'll keep her eyesight. John, with his weight problem, that he'll be able to... Uh, uh, overcome his whatever habits that uh, lead to that and uh, Jarvis to have a uh, safe flight home whatever else Lord that isn't on this list we pray for those who are within the sound of my voice that you will encourage us and be with us and lift us up and help us to have courage just like the early church did as they were under persecution we're under a different type but we pray that you'll give us courage and hope and strength and move forward in faith with an ability to love that comes from you. And be with us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus, our Lord.